Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Dirk and Deets Timeless Wealth Podcast. A bit of a solemn podcast today, but a, an interesting one nonetheless. The uh, the great investor Charlie Munger passed on yesterday, being uh, November twenty eighth, at the age of ninety nine. And we thought as a is a bit of a uh, let's say respect and and just tribute. A, a tribute to him. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk a little bit about Charlie Munger and some of the affectations that he brought to the world from uh, an investing perspective. So that's coming up next. So, Amy, why don't we talk a little bit about Charlie Munger? Who who was he? So, an American investor and businessman, philanthropist. He was born in 1924, so he went through the, the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. Best known for being the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, um, and also being a, a very close friend of Warren Buffett, who we all follow very closely. But I think what I remember most is his quick wit. I just loved his quick wit and sharp mind, like yeah. super, super smart, but very dry and just to the point. Like, I love that. Very, fu- He was very funny. But, yeah. but he, and I don't know if he meant to be funny when he was I, actually I know, being very biting in his wit, but he actually ultimately was. And I loved um, it. You know, I remember one time, this is about three or four years ago, just prior to COVID, and uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger were uh, sitting doing their uh, their Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, and they're mm-hmm. on stage, and they take questions from the audience after they report their their uh, results and so forth. And they were asked about Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrency, and uh, <laughs> you know Warren Buffett went first, and he had a very eloquent manner of describing what he felt Bitcoin to be. You know, very felt it very similar to gold, and mm-hmm. had no economic productive value, and so forth. And ultimately, basically said, look. He's not a big fan of it. And Warren Buffett, or Charlie Munger, replied after Warren Buffett, clearly, Warren, you're a bigger fan of Bitcoin than I am. I call it trading in turds. Yeah. <laughs> Which is amazing. I thought that was really funny. But yeah, he had a lot of great things to say around investing. And he yeah. had this ability to really summarize it in a sentence or two that was really impactful. And that's a rare skill that yeah. uh, that people have. And I think we could share some of those quotes that uh, we found. Well, and he came from very humble beginnings, right? So yep. he was he was married, uh, divorced at 29, uh, had three kids at the time, lost his son a year after. He was mm-hmm. only nine, died of leukemia. Yep. Um, then eventually did remarry um, and, and go on to have, I think, four more kids after that. Mm-hmm. Um but he was very kind of pragmatic in his thinking. And mm-hmm. when him and Warren got together and started talking, and, and again, he was a big lifelong learner, right? Mm-hmm. Like big reader and just Voracious loved reader. to learn. And yep. that's probably what kept his mind so sharp all these years. And uh, he was one month away from being 100. Yeah, he was. And he was still reading. He was still lucid. He was, yeah. still, he was still active. Um, I mean, rumors, I heard that he would read upwards of 100 books a year. Oh, which I is crazy because I, I remember... It. I remember about five or six years ago, I, I read 60 books. Yeah. And I felt like I was reading all the time. Any yeah. free time I had, I was reading a book. And I only got to maybe 58, I think was the exact count. Yeah. Of books. And he got to 100 a year. Amazing. Pretty incredible. Amazing. So. Well, one of the things that, one of the quotes that I really liked, and we were actually talking about this the other day. When you're, when you're an investor, you have to be a bit of an optimist, right? Yep. Like not you know, not head in the sky, but you have to be optimistic because the world, there's so many horrible things that can happen. Mm -hmm. You would just constantly sit on the sidelines. And I found a quote and it made me laugh because it shows this quick wit. And he said this back, I think in 2010, he said, if I can be optimistic when I'm nearly dead, surely the rest (laughs) of the world could handle a little inflation. 
you know, he's just putting it in perspective. It's like sometimes we can blow things out of proportion, mm-hmm. but if you kind of get back to it and just, again, focus on the future and how we overcome things and we learn our way out of things. Well, and he was a, he was a big behavioral mm-hmm. investor. He, he believed yeah. that your, your biggest risk as an investor is your behavior. And one of, one of his great quotes is, you know, he talks about, you know, the money isn't made in the buying or the selling. The money, the big money's made in the waiting. I love that quote. Yeah. Read that one again. I like that quote so, so much. So the big money isn't made in the buying or the selling. The big money's made in the waiting. Mm -hmm. It's the patience, right? Yep. And again, going back to, we talk about all the time, the compounding, like that is something they've always hammered the table about. And Mm -hmm. again, being patient and picking your spots and not just buying cheap companies. It was big on just buying good companies at reasonable prices. And then being patient and letting them execute to their business. Yeah, what they call their margin of safety, right? And, you know, another one, like, again, this speaks to his wit, but also there is an element of uh, pragmatism to it as well. He said, uh, where's the effect of, it's more more important in life to, instead of being too smart, to avoid doing stupid things. It's Mm. true. (laughs) That's basically what it is. And it is true. Yeah. You know, because a loss is going to hurt you more, more than, than a gain is going to help yeah. you. Yeah. And oftentimes when you try to be smart, and I'm putting quotations around yeah, yeah. that, you outsmart yourself and then you get smacked. Yeah. But avoiding doing stupid things and just staying alive is yeah. actually a pretty pragmatic response to the yeah. complexities of life. Right? Yeah. So. I find him to be hilarious. A really funny guy. Yeah. But I think part of what shaped him too was going through the depression, right? Mm-hmm. Having that mindset. And mm-hmm. he talks a lot about, and, and we read this in, in Morgan Housel's book about greed and envy, right? And he just said, I was never envious. Like I was always appreciative of what I had and just kind of kept the main thing, the main thing, right? So, But, but equally, he wanted to be a wealthy man. Yeah. Like he, he wanted yeah, to yeah, have yeah. He did. wealth. Yeah, he did. But he, was, he didn't want wealth so he could buy the expensive car or anything like that. Right. I think what he wanted wealth was to buy him time and to buy him independence and, yeah. and give him freedom of thought and so forth yeah. versus yeah. the material things in life. Yeah, it's true. Well, I don't believe, like, for example, um, uh, if you want wealth or if you want to attain wealth, that doesn't necessarily mean, like, you're greedy or anything, right? Mm-hmm. So, if yeah. you, you know, yeah. well, he I didn't, didn't act greedy well, in any way, for sure. Well, and after his first divorce, like, he lost everything. Like, he lost the house, he was fine, yeah. and then he didn't have, you know, uh, medical insurance for his son. Mm-hmm. And so that, again, probably shaped his thinking is... is having that freedom and not having to worry about going back to that spot again. Well, when you look at, you know, just people in general, um, you know, money may not make you happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it can certainly pay to make a lot of problems go away. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so so that's a very, again, a very pragmatic view of of wealth. I mean, the the one thing, you know, Charlie was very much a... um, a behavioral investor mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I'll never another time when uh, when basically uh, they were doing a, a, the uh, annual uh, event for uh, for Berkshire Hathaway mm-hmm. shareholder meeting and Warren Buffett was asked what's the greatest investment vehicle in the world and he famously said the S&P 500 he said there's no better yeah. investment vehicle in the world for someone to invest in if you're just a regular investor than the S&P 500 and what he he mandated was that most active investors are going to underperform that index over time. Mm-hmm. And he's right. Like probably 75% of active managers mm-hmm. are underperforming the S&P 500. And, you know, and he also t- looked at how the S&P 500 done over many, 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 many years. And again, Warren Buffett's right. I think the S&P 500 since its inception compounded at 11% per year. Mm-hmm. Mm. But Charlie Munger very acutely, uh, you know, basically expressed to Warren. He goes, yeah, Warren, you're absolutely correct. 
but no one in the world is going to have the intestinal fortitude to stick with it. Mm, it's true. He said that. It's no true. one, no one will do it. You're right, but not a single person will be able they to buy the S and P 500 and hold it nonstop yeah. and not fiddle with it over 40 years. Mm-hmm. No one's going to be able to do it. Yeah. So and, he, and he's right. Most people. Why can't did do that. did he mean because um, uh, because people like when let's just say atrocities happen or when major events happen, people will leave the S&P 500 and just leave the, the way he worded it is mm-hmm. most investors will shoot themselves in the foot at mm-hmm. some point over yeah. the span of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, gotcha. but what he means is they'll, they'll get basically overly exuberant when the markets are high, overly mm-hmm. despondent when markets are low, yeah. make an adjustment accordingly and it'll be the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And we, look, we see that all the time. And like, even, even with us as investors, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we're huge as people know, we, we own for our clients, you know, Mike, the Microsoft's of the world, the Broadcom's of the world and so forth. And, in 2022, they had a very difficult year, and mm-hmm. it was yeah. very, uh, it was tough to hold on to them. Even though our clients were up a significant amount yeah. prior to that, they yeah. were down 30, 40 yeah. percent. To not panic and sell out of them was a, a real mm-hmm. gut check, which mm-hmm. we didn't. Right. Thank God, because they're up, you know, 50 to 60 percent this year. Mm-hmm. So, and then these are rock solid companies with fortress balance sheets and, and so forth. I mean, and in fact, Charlie Munger was. Um, he was a real influence in terms of Berkshire acquiring Apple, mm. and now Apple's their their mm-hmm. largest uh, position in their publicly held companies. And mm. yeah. uh, you know, so so you know, again, the other thing that Charlie Munger was really good at is adjusting uh, Berkshire Hathaway's investment, um, the the basis under which they made their investments. Let me right. word it that way. Right. Um, Warren Buffett was very much uh, in the early seventies and even the late sixties. Uh, uh, Benjamin Graham. This is how you should invest from a value perspective. Right. Charlie Munger, when he joined Berkshire Hathaway, really helped shift Warren Buffett's thinking mm-hmm. away from just, well, we have to buy these almost like distressed companies right. to make money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, turned, and so that actually led to, again, Warren Buffett owning you know the Costco's of the world, mm-hmm. the, the Apple's of the world. It was just acquiring them at a reasonable price. They don't right. have to be distressed or completely. It's just, yep. let's be reasonable and practical and mm-hmm. just, yep. to your point, being patient. <laughs> Yeah, and then Munger was instrumental in that. Yeah, um, you know it's always interesting if you looked at Charlie Munger's net worth. Now he he recently, like I'd say in the last decade, gave much of his net worth away. I think mm-hmm. at a time of passing yesterday, he might have had a billion dollars in net worth. Mm-hmm. Of course, he accumulated far more than that. I think he was worth at his peak twelve billion dollars, mm-hmm. but he never reached the the level of wealth that Warren Buffett achieved. Right, and a lot of questions are often asked as to why that is. Do you have any thoughts or any any insight in terms of well, why was, that might be? He was older, and I guess the 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 situation with family going through a divorce that left him kind of behind. So again, the compounding, and he lost some of that time. Um, that that probably added up. Well, it did and actually, so Charlie would admit that being a being divorced hurt him. Mm-hmm. You know, financially it set him back. Yeah, uh, and he also started sixteen years later right. than Warren Buffett. So yeah. that actually accounts for, and that's again. Yet again is evidence of the power of compounding. That mm-hmm. 16-year difference between right. when Warren Buffett started investing yeah. with Berkshire and when Munger started investing with Berkshire ended up being $90 billion difference mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. worth, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Maybe even more. Yeah. Well, I'm going to miss his quick wits and his funny comments and, and just, again, that practical style of investing. And uh, But I do look forward to I'm sure that we've seen lots of headlines today, and I'm sure there's going to be lots of – 
commentary that we're going to get you know a good refresher of all the wonderful things that he contributed especially to the investment world yeah, yeah well well deserved and, and uh, let's not, not lose sight of the fact that he was one of the great philanthropists of uh, absolutely in the united states as well so yeah. gave 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 virtually all of his, his money back yeah um rest in peace mr munger and uh, you will be missed till next time till next time